Welcome to another episode of the My Creative District podcast, where we discuss how to channel your creative power into building the life you want, building the business you want, and making the impact you want. We believe creatives can live out a passionate and fulfilled life when they completely embrace their unique design and purpose. Want to turn your passion into profit? Stay tuned to hear from industry professionals, paradigm shifters, and world changers who have done just that and live it every day. This is the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. Hey guys, today I am interviewing Jeffrey Madoff and we'll be discussing how to make a living with your ideas. But before we begin, I want to remind you that My Creative District and Worldwide Dance Challenge has just reopened enrollment into the Worldwide Dance Academy. If you know anyone that would be interested in learning how to dance from instructors across the world, have them visit WorldwideDanceChallenge.com forward slash academy to learn more. Now, I am super excited to uh, be sitting down here with Jeffrey. He's a director, a photographer, a writer, and a professor in New York City. He's a founder and CEO of Madoff Productions, a film production company that creates award-winning branded content. Now, he's a sought-after speaker and has lectured at New York, uh, Steinhardt, uh, Google Next. Uh, he's also appeared at South, uh, South by Southwest in Brazil and so much more. So, Jeffrey, I'm super excited to have you here, a part of the podcast today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, Jesse. Absolutely, absolutely. I am a big fan of... Uh, your book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But, you know, you have worked with some of the biggest brands out there. Ralph Lauren, you've worked with Gucci, you've worked with Victoria's Secret. But before we get into the pinnacle of your career, I kind of want to lay some context. And so uh, I would love to turn back the clock, so it were, and talk a little bit about what was growing up like for you, you know, starting at age 11, 12 years old, what was life like growing up in that time for you? Well, you know, I was always doing things. And what I mean by that is, of course, I played with the kids in the neighborhood because I grew up in a neighborhood that was like the little rascals and there was always just kids playing. But I used to do magic shows, print up posters, and then I would do magic shows for kids in the neighborhood. I also started a theater. That sounds a lot more impressive than it actually was. But what I did was rent what was back then eight millimeter films. And then I would take my sister's stereo and I would find music that went along with the images and sound effects because they were silent. The movies were silent. And uh, so I would put together sound effects and music to go along with the movie. Little did I know years later, that I'd be doing that same thing, but actually getting paid well to do it, you know, uh, because I would be creating these videos for different clients, finding the soundtrack to go with it, putting together the whole feeling of what the film was. So I think it's oftentimes important to look at what you really enjoyed when you were a kid and figure out, is there a way I can make money at this? You know, cause this is something I would love to do. And I'm seeing that in retrospect, I can't say that at the time I was thinking that. I do think, and I actually asked all my guests in class, if we would have known you as a kid, would the path that you've taken make sense or would we be surprised by what you've done? And I think if you look at that, the stuff that I did as a kid and what I enjoyed doing, you would see certain patterns there. Those patterns, I think, have manifested as I became an adult 
and doing the kinds of things that I'd like to do, which was storytelling, filmmaking, collaborating with other people and putting things together. So as a kid, I also did the normal kid jobs. I had a paper route. Those don't exist anymore, but I had a, a paper route. <laughs> I, I had one door of those to door. Did you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are gone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was a tombstone setter and I never had a customer complain. We would go out, drive out to some cemetery, put down the tombstone. This guy, Leroy, and I worked together. We'd set the stone and then Leroy would stomp on the ground and he'd say, this all right with you? This good? And nobody ever said anything. So we assumed they were satisfied. So he said, okay, another happy customer. Let's go. His running joke was they're dying to do business with us. So I've had a lot of different kinds of jobs. So my youth was filled up with a lot of play and the things that I enjoy doing to make pocket money. So when it snowed in Akron, Ohio, which is where I grew up, we would look at that as a payday because school would be closed and then we'd shovel driveways. You know, in the summers it was mowing lawns. So it was nothing that crazy the way the upbringing was at that time. But there were those things like making films and doing stories and those sort of things that I enjoyed when I was a kid that have been kind of constants throughout my life. Do you think that all of your playing and creativeness, do you feel like you knew that that was that was leading you somewhere or like when you were saying you were making these these silent films did you feel like it was leading you somewhere or was it just something that you did just because you wanted to do it and you just kind of did it on a whim that <laughs> i just kind of wanted to do it and did it as a whim i had no master plan it would have been unusual if i had planned far enough in advance to know what i was going to do for dinner so sure. so making some kind of a grand life plan path, no, I didn't. I've always been seduced by ideas and always tried to do things that I enjoyed doing. And as I got older, because making a living was essential, I had to figure out how to do that. But it was never some plan that I knew, oh, this is gonna take me in that direction. Just it was never part of a plan. Now, did you have, did you have parents that were creative that, that would encourage you? Or was this something that kind of was a path that was all on your own? My parents were very encouraging. You know, when they saw that I could draw and like to draw, then they would all, they had a retail store. And so they would bring home this craft paper that they would wrap packages in. So I'd have big pieces of paper that I could draw on and do stuff. <clears throat> so they always were very encouraging for the, anything that I wanted to do, and uh, which was kind of great. And that also made me very single-minded or strong-willed about certain things, because I was drawing, I could draw pretty well, and I was drawing these kind of sophisticated drawings. And I remember in class, the art teacher would come in with her cart, and she'd want us to do art. So one of the art things she wants us to do is that you cover a balloon with paper mache and you pop the balloon and you've got this multicolored paper in the shape of a balloon and just, who cares? You know, so <laughs> I was drawing, I was drawing at that time, Davy Crockett and the Alamo and really cool scenes that other kids wanted. She said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm drawing in this art class. And she said, uh, you were given the balloon and the paper mache. And I said, I did that. It's over there. She said, well, then do another one. I said, I don't want to do another one. I didn't want to do the first one. I'm drawing. It's art class. Why can't I do that? 
sit for the rest of the class with your hands folded. So the reason I tell that story is because I think that a lot of kids, unfortunately, because I had very supportive parents, that the creative things I'd like doing weren't squashed out of me when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, I was reinforced by my folks and I was very fortunate about that. And I would rather sit there with my hands folded than do some stupid thing that I had no interest in doing. You know, I felt it was like too bad that she didn't recognize, here's a kid who's interested in drawing. She's an art teacher. Why don't you encourage that? But, you know, she just wanted her instructions followed. And I wasn't real good at that. And so, yeah, and I feel like, I feel like every creative can kind of relate to that. We're, I mean, that thing, I think that's what makes us who we are is that we're definitely not people that necessarily fall in line well, right? It's, it kind of gives us that little knack to, to think outside the box. But did you ever have a point in your early on years, maybe in your teen years, where you started to really fall in love with this idea of making video that made you said, okay, this is what I want to do. Or did that just kind of, did it just kind of fall in your lap as you started progressing on into college and whatnot? No, I had no idea. And I had a career before video that happened by accident. So I've had lots of accidental careers, but I didn't have these things that I had planned out that I thought I really wanted to do. You know, if I had it to do over again, would I do it differently? Probably not. Most paths are zigzagged. This isn't a, a yeah. direct connection from this to that, then that to that. I was working in this little boutique in Madison, Wisconsin, where I went to college. A friend of mine that I grew up with, were dear friends to this day, called me up. He had graduated from college a year before I did. And he said, uh, hey, I've saved up some money. Can you think of a gig that would earn more than bank interest. And I said, well, I see the stuff we sell. I could always draw. I'll start a clothing company. Yep. And that's literally as much thought as I put into it. <laughs> and then uh, about a week later, I got a check for what was more money than I ever had at one time in my life. And that was 1500 bucks. Wow. And I started a clothing company and starting that company, I built it up. It was doubling in size every four months. I was able to attract financial backing. And within two years, I had 110 people working for me, two factories in Wisconsin, an office in New York. Wow. I was chosen one of the top 10 young designers in the United States, which that's also not very impressive because I think there were only eight of us. So it wasn't hard to be in the top 10. You talk about this uh, briefly in your book. Uh, you're growing this company in, in Madison. And what happens after that? What's your next step? Well, I wanted to move to New York. You know, initially, I thought I had the best of both worlds. You know, I had my motorcycle, I drove to work on my cycle and was in Wisconsin, which was beautiful. And New York was initially kind of intimidating. You know, I hadn't been on mass transit. I wasn't used to the crowd of the cities and all that. But as I went there more, I fell more in love with it and discovered I'm a stimulus junkie. I love being around all this stuff happening all the time. That yeah. to me was cool. And I love that. And I wanted to move to New York because also I needed to be around people who were doing what I was doing so I could learn more. And none of that was happening in Wisconsin. And I had my financial backer who I was able to attract within the first six months of business, a really good man. And he owned five banks. He was a lawyer. But the reason that he invested in me was he thought I was kind of a novel character and kind of 
liked me and my business was growing so quickly, but also I provided employment for Wisconsinites. And they all, they all banked at his bank. When I told him I wanted to move, he said, well, you know why I back you. And if you move the base of the business to New York, I'm not going to continue to back you. And I had to make, you know, what was at that time in my life, a very major decision. What do I want to do? You know, I had the, the fortunately, and, and this is because of my dad, I had the knowledge that, that money comes and goes, time only goes. And wow. uh, I decided I want to move. So we'll close the business. You know, that was a big deal. And, you know, friends said to me, wow, do you have a job lined up in New York? And I said, no. Do you know people there? No. Do you have a place to live lined up? No. Well, aren't you afraid of what's going to happen when you move there? And I said, actually, I'm, I'm more afraid of what's going to happen if I stay here. The script was already written. I wanted to be around other young people that wanted to be doing stuff. And uh, so I had saved up enough that if I lived really modestly, I could survive for a year. I traveled around the world, uh, lived a bunch of different places. And then when I ran out of money, I started another clothing company. I built that up and then sold it. And then from that, I transitioned into the film business. And I, I mentioned, you know, when you say, uh, you know, did something just fall into your lap? Nothing ever really fell into my lap. But it's important, and I think especially if you are an entrepreneur, it's important to recognize opportunity or potential opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, when my friend said to me, start a business, you know, it happened that I was working in the clothing store and had some concept of what that business was. Uh, but then when I transitioned into the film business, uh, that happened because somebody who I was buying fabric from, the owner of the company, very nice guy, and he asked me if I knew anything about the film business. And I said, I go to movies, but I don't really know much about the business. Right. And he said, well, look, you're a smart kid. You've got a good head for business. My son is your age. He doesn't listen to me, but he might listen to you. And he's gotten involved with these people who are making a film. Would you mind meeting him? I said, sure, I'll meet him. And when I met him, that then became another potential opportunity because I got involved with people that were making a film. Dennis Hopper, if you know who that is. Oh, sure. Uh, and William Burroughs, who wrote the book Naked Lunch. This was his book, Junkie, that they were going to make a movie out of. Yeah. And I started to learn about, actually, I started to learn about a few things. I started to learn about celebrity, and I also started to learn about movies. And what I thought about movies was, well, this is going to allow me to use my creativity in a much broader way and a more satisfying way than fashion will. So I became very attracted to filmmaking and taught myself how to shoot, how to light, how to edit, how to do all of these things, because I really found it really captivating and thought, wow, this is something that I can only get better at as time goes. And that's true, by the way, about anything that you do, but I was ready for a change and wanted to pursue a different career. So yeah. I did that and then uh, started a, the film never got made because these guys were a bit too out there to focus enough at that time to sure. get a movie made. You know, they could hardly make it through each evening without getting so high they were dysfunctional. So, sure. <laughs> so that never happened. It did introduce me to people 
that I was able to transition into starting a film company. You know, and within a few months, I had things on all three networks, all three major networks, and that was before cable. So that was a big deal that I was on ABC and CBS and NBC, you know, pretty yeah. fast. And so I just loved the, I loved the, the creative demands that it had. And it was very much like the fashion business, you know, and it's very much like any business. I think there's a lot of artificial walls between businesses, but you know, whether you're talking about your dance tour yep. or whether you're talking about designing a line of clothing, you know, or whether you're making a movie, you have to think about the idea which starts up here, how you translate that idea, whether it's a sketch or a proposal or whatever it is, the materials that it costs to do it, the labor it'll cost to do it, uh, how much can you charge and can you deliver in a certain time frame? And that's something that all businesses confront. And I realized that you know, these walls between businesses aren't real. They're more perceptual and about vocabulary, but the protocols of doing any kind of business are essentially the same thing. So it demystified the film business for me. And I was able to, you know, learn that, learn how to do that, learn how to budget and cost. And I discovered it was so much like the clothing business and like so many other businesses that I've learned about since then. I want to rewind a little bit because there's a lot to unpack in that, just that timeline. I want to go back to this clothing company that you kind of nonchalantly said from, you know, inception to two years, you had 110 employees working for you, two different factories um, and an office in New York. You're talking about this one person comes to you and says, well, you're thinking about leaving. If you leave the state that, you're, that you've built this thing in, he's saying, I'm going to pull my funding and, and, and all this. And you just say, well, I guess then I'm going to close up shop. I think some people would have looked at that in a two years time and said, well, one, why would you leave a good thing when it appeared to be a good thing? What was it that you saw that gave you permission to walk away from what most people would say was a good thing? I had had the company at that point, three and a half years. There was a recession happening. So stores that normally paid in 30 days were paying in 120 days or longer mm. or going out of business. Cash flow got to be very tough. The business was hitting obstacles and it was also, I had to lay people off. All of the people that worked for me, and I was like 24, and all these sure. people that worked for me were older, most of them had families, and I didn't take that lightly. Nothing emotionally prepared me for having to let people go, to be con cognizant of the fact that these people had families to support. They counted on that job, they counted on me, and it was, that was a big deal as a kid and, and I happened to have empathy, you know, and empathy Absolutely. for others. And the fact that this was disrupting their lives, but also I knew I had to get on with mine. I had had extraordinary experiences uh, in a very short time, a very steep but effective learning curve about the business. I wanted to change. But first I wanted a break to think about it. So as I mentioned, I had enough money that I could travel and not work as long as I lived modestly, and that's what I did. Then I was also aware that I had saleable talents, so I was able to raise money again, start another company that did well, and then sell yeah. that company. I had to take care of myself, 
and you know realize what was going on and what were the opportunities that lie ahead so you know so i don't want to i don't want to make like it was so oh well i'll try something else it was a hard decision sure because it was also a hard decision to close a business that i had started yep and you know that's a lot to deal with you know, yeah. when you're at any age, but especially Absolutely. when you've got no precedent when you're that young, but it taught me a lot of important lessons. Sometimes we, we take a look at a situation like that. What made you, you know, decide, because at that, some people would say that that might be a fork in the road, right? Where it's like, well, do I go and get a real job, right? With security and not have the, the stress of that. What made you decide to keep pushing the entrepreneurial route, the creative route, and not just settle for what most people would say would have been the smarter route to go? And they might be right. <laughs> you, know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm an entrepreneur because I'm unemployable. I've always been able to think about what I wanted to do in terms of, as I mentioned, being seduced by ideas. So when the opportunity to get into film started, I thought, wow, this is really cool and I'm really interested in this. And I just had a strong intuitive feel for the medium and thought that I could do cool work in it. It was more about that. I never thought for a moment of, well, I should give up this fool's errand and get a regular job. And I think these days, by the way, at least back then, there was the thought that you could have a career in some job and have that job safety and all well, that's gone. That doesn't exist in the world anymore. Thanks. Nobody's got job safety anymore. You know, my parents were entrepreneurs. They own their own business. My sister is an entrepreneur. She owns her own business. And I think we grew up in a household where that just sort of seemed to be what we do. And so I never thought about for a moment, well, I don't know, should I give this up and, get a regular job, maybe I could sell insurance. Now it was, you know, not, and I can sell, by the way, I know how to sell. You have to be able to sell when you're in business. Selling is a, is a critical part of it. But I was never, I never had that question. The question was, what am I going to do next? Not, do I need to settle down and get a real job? I don't know what a real job is. Sounds like a real drag, but I don't, know what a real, I don't know what a real job is. What would you say are the top two lessons that you learned from that experience having to close that business up and you know start a new venture? First of all, I think this is true in all businesses and for all entrepreneurs, perseverance. You know, you have to keep moving and yep. you can't let the obstacles defeat you you have to figure out your way to go over under around or through them and if you don't have perseverance and if you are discouraged easily being an entrepreneur is not for you and the other thing is is to not be afraid to talk about those things that are difficult uh because most people want to put out some pollyanna image out there of how great their life is and filter it through Instagram and other things like that. And, you know, use social media to promote their perfect life. I think the technical term is bullshit. Uh, you know, <laughs> so I, I learned to be open about the pain and the difficulty. And what I found about that is that people then opened up because we all experience that. There's nobody that is an entrepreneur and has been one for some years 
and hasn't experienced that roller coaster ride of the you know, exhilarating highs and debilitating lows. We've all gone through it. Yeah. So, you know, you do have to decide what defines your quality of life. The biggest thing is determining what is your motivation? Why are you even doing what you're doing? Is it to make money? Is it to have a secure lifestyle? Is it to uh, gain fame? Is it a need for some kind of creative expression? You know, what is it? Because that can help you through the difficult times, understanding why you started doing it in the first place. Because sometimes when you're getting hit and body blows from all around, you can lose track of, why did I even start doing this? <laughs> you know, when you have clarity about your vision and what your venture is, and that then helps you be motivated, but along with motivation, for action, you need to persevere in that action so that you can make it work. Because there are going to be roadblocks along the way. What you talked about as well as you talk about, um, you're, you're talking about transparency. I, I, I love this topic of transparency because so many people are trying to live an Instagram life, like you said, with all the pretty filters. We filter our words, we filter our pictures because we wanna have, we think, that people are attracted to success on the outside. But I don't really think that people are attracted to success on the outside. They're attracted to success on the inside. And that starts with you being honest with who you are and where you're at. And you can't do that without transparency. And so how do you feel like those lessons led you to, you know, you talk about in your book how you've built some pretty amazing relationships, one of which is with a very, very prominent brand that everybody knows a person that everybody knows his name is Ralph Lauren and and so I want to talk about how did the lessons you learned from that from that experience with closing that company how did it lead you to building a, a business that worked with people like Ralph Lauren and actually built relationships with them I saw an opportunity because at that time fashion shows were not being shot so there was still photography going on. Okay. And I also recognized that the designers were backstage the whole time, prepping the, the models, doing the final touches before they went out on the runway. So the only thing that the designer could get feedback on was from his employees that were out in the audience or the fashion critics. I knew that if they were able to see their own fashions go down the runway, see how the models move, see how the crowd was responding, all of that, that would be invaluable. But then they would also have a piece that they could play in their showroom, play in the area of their lobby. When people were waiting to see the line, they could see the fashion show, even play it in stores at point of purchase, which at that time was not a thing. We were one of the first people doing it. And so I saw a tremendous opportunity there. When I started working with Ralph Lauren, which was back in like 1983, he was one of my first clients. He recognized the value of that. And, you know, having worked with Ralph for like 36 years, you know, we established a, a very, very nice working relationship with each other. We enjoyed each other. We respected each other. I learned things from him because he built, you know, yeah. a, an incredible global brand. Yeah, monster. And uh, he does what he does better than just about anybody. 
it's interesting. At one time, I was doing his Lifetime Achievement Award, which was a big deal at Lincoln Center. Audrey Hepburn, iconic Hollywood actress, was presenting the award to him. Yeah, that's incredible. When we were in the early stages of discussing the film, there was a bunch of people around that worked for Ralph and me, and we're looking at all these pictures. And Ralph said to me, uh, everybody's saying what designer that I remind them of. And you haven't said anything. Who do I remind you of? And I said, you don't remind me of any designer. You remind me of Walt Disney. Oh, and wow. he looked at me and smiled, goes, you get it. <laughs> and the thing is that he created a world that people are invited into. And instead of Mickey Mouse, it's the polo pony, but you can leave with the polo shirt with that logo, be a part of that status and good taste world that he created. And at one point I said to Ralph, so how do you keep your pulse so clearly on the desires of the consumer? And he said, I know what the consumer wants because I am the consumer. And I thought back to when I was designing, the reason I designed what I designed is at that time, either dress like you were in high school, like a kid, or you dressed like adults who look like insurance salesmen. And I wanted something for me, for contemporaries who wanted to wear something that was a bit more hip, more cool looking. And that was the beginning of the contemporary market and fashion. So in fact, I was the customer, I was the consumer, which I didn't realize initially, for what I was doing. So I've always, in what I've done, used myself as that barometer as Ralph did so effectively, you know, so I learned things just by osmosis along the way. And I'm a, definitely someone who has insatiable curiosity and I've had the wonderful opportunity and privilege to have interviewed Ralph many, many times and in great depth. And we've had some intense talks together, you know, just about what it is, but also when a man becomes a brand. Yeah. You know, because Ralph Lauren's a person. Yep. And, you know, and he's had an extraordinary career for 53 years. And just that longevity alone is astounding. It's also important to be open to learning all the time. And you want to learn from people who know more than you do, like about building a brand and the importance of that kind of cons consistency and the importance of really sticking your guns and not compromising what your beliefs are. So I've been fortunate enough to work around people that I could see that in action and how that manifests. By the way, I'm still learning. I learn from my guests every week in class. I learn from the students. I have insatiable curiosity about so many things. And I read all the time. I go to movies. I go to plays. I go to museums. I do all these things, listen to music. Because if you are, if you consider yourself to be creative, you want to feed that creativity all the time and be inspired by all these things that are around you. You just have to focus and devote your attention to those things because you can learn from those and be inspired by those. It's interesting to me because one of the things that I thought was, was fascinating in your book, and, and we'll, we'll talk about the book here in just a second, but you talked about this class that you wanted to start for creatives. 
and and so I'm curious. You just said be you know being around other people is something that feeds your curiosity. Is that partly why you started teaching this course to other creatives so that you could get around even more creatives? Was that part of your part of your motivation, or what was your motivation for starting that course? So what happened was. I had been a guest speaker. A, one of the professors at Parsons uh, actually came up to me after one of the Ralph Lauren shows. And at that time, again, video was fairly new. And he said, uh, I'd like you to come talk to my class at Parsons about what you do and you know, describe what you do and why there's a business there and that sort of thing. So I did. And his name is Dean Stadel. And it's weird if your first name is Dean and you teach at a college because he wasn't a Dean, he was a professor, <laughs> but his first name was Dean. The talk in class went really well and the students really enjoyed it. And I got asked back semester after semester and there was an opportunity after about four years of doing that. Uh, he said to me, look, there's an opening for an adjunct professorship. I think you should go for it. And I said, well, I don't know that I can because, you know, I can get a phone call and be out of the country. It's just, I don't know if I can do that. And he sure. said, well, we'll be flexible. Why don't you try teaching for just a month, you know, four sessions, you know, teach for that four or five weeks and, and do uh, see what you think. What I didn't know was that they were actually trying out three different people, me being one of them. And then I was offered the job to teach. But I said- okay. What I want to teach is, you know, I want to teach a different kind of class. I want to teach a class that helps people who have talent, both to nurture and help their talent flourish and find their creative voice. But also I want to bring people from many other fields in that can not only share experiences, they can share wisdom in terms of best practices and how to do what they do. Yeah. And that's how it started. And I realized in doing that, I loved the opportunity of meeting people. And it was great that I had Parsons as a platform because that lent credibility to me. Sure, teaching for absolutely. a highly regarded design school. As I started getting high profile people into the class, it became easier to get other people into the class. Because uh, a lot of people want to know, well, who else has done this? I wanted people that would actually talk to the students and not evangelize about what a great company they worked for or how terrific they were. I wanted people that would really engage in dialogue. When I got these guests in, I would ask them questions they weren't used to being asked. But they actually liked that because some of them who have been interviewed a lot enjoyed the novelty about having to think of something different. Because we got into real stuff. And so the students really liked it. I really liked it. And I felt, wow, there's something really here. And so now it's, you know, 14 years later, and I'm still teaching the class. And I am as motivated and excited about it as I have ever been. And the book was a byproduct of the class. The book is yeah. the same name. And it's sort of like the classroom experience, except that you get to through the course of the book experience a wide range of guests and the different points of view that they bring to the creative process, to the business process, to the notion of success, failure, overcoming obstacles, doubt, all of these things. And you get to hear from a lot of really smart people, really talented people who have creative careers and make a living with their ideas. 
Yeah, one of the things that I thought about, and again, that book is Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas uh, by B. Jeffrey Madoff. And again, this is a must read. If you are a creative that's wanting to, you know, get a different perspective, if you're wanting to launch something, if you're wanting to take this creative passion, this drive that you have, and you're wanting to actually turn it into something that could make a, a profit, that can make an impact, that can help you launch an idea. This is a book that you need to, to read. And one of the things that I, I've thought that was very interesting and it, and it says, as you, as you are talking about the class, you're almost bringing the modern day mastermind that so many influencers are using today to build businesses and help others build businesses. You're literally doing that same idea within your class within your, you know, almost mm -hmm. a university, which I haven't heard of before. You're bringing in top speakers and guests to give extra wisdom, but also you're encouraging your students to bring their own wisdom. Because I think that's one of the major things that a lot of classroom settings today miss is they miss that although everybody has a different level of experience, everybody has a level of value. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying is that I don't want to just come in here and talk at you for 60 minutes. Let's actually get down to the nitty gritty of this thing and have mm -hmm. everybody give their perspective so that, you know, magic can happen. So I want to, I want to ask, you know, as, as we're wrapping up the episode here, I want to ask what has been one of the most powerful moments for you leading that mastermind group, leading that class and, and what, what have you seen come out of it that has made such an impact on your life? Probably the most fulfilling aspect of the class is when I get an email from a past student who says to me, the class changed my life. I wasn't sure what direction or I thought I knew what direction I was going to go. I got exposed to ways of thinking and professions that I wasn't even didn't even know existed. And I just wanted to say thank you and let you know the impact that's had on me. Or when students come up to me the last day of class or I get emails from them about how the class affected them. That feels really good to me, you know, and that's the fulfilling part of it when I know that they're, you're never going to get through to everybody in a class. But yeah, there absolutely. are those that, you know, you just light up and you know that you get it and you can almost tell who those people are the by the first day of class. I think that is the coolest thing to me to know that I've had an impact on the students' lives that have actually made a difference. And that's, that's pretty cool to me. Who has been your top two favorite interviews that you have done for this book and why? So my favorite interview is always the one I'm doing at that time. Okay. And I'm not avoiding your, to answer your question, Yeah. but I don't truly don't have a favorite because each of them has contributed something unique, something wonderful. So I don't have one that, wow, this person so blew me away that they stand out from all the others. All of them, because they come to the class with the idea of sharing ideas have been fantastic. So, you know, when I had, and I'll give you a few examples, when I've had Michael Arad, he designed the 9-11 Memorial. I said to the students, I want you to just think for a moment. 
you know, how many of you have been to Washington and seen something like the Lincoln Memorial that's there for the ages? And, you know, they raised their hand. I said, how many of you have seen the 9-11 Memorial in lower Manhattan? A number of them had. I said, we have a chance to talk to the person that designed this. It's going to be there long after all of us in this room are gone. That's really cool to ponder and to be able to talk to that person about where did their ideas come from? What were the political battles they had to fight in order to execute that idea? What was it like when you got written up in the newspaper and people were eviscerating you and saying that your design was horrible? Although yeah. now, you know, it's become one of the most respected memorials ever. And so that's cool. But then having somebody like Roy Wood Jr., who is the senior black correspondent for The Daily Show, a great comedian, wonderful person, who talked about how to put a comedy routine together. And all the work that goes into that and all of the different steps. And that's really cool. And then there's been a painter, uh, you know, Zaria Foreman, who makes amazing work, photorealistic, four foot by seven foot paintings, which are astounding. NASA brought her along to do paintings on their Arctic journey and on and on. That's just three of the people. And I couldn't choose who was the best. And there have been at this point, a few hundred others and all of them have brought something really terrific to it. As you said, give me your top two or your top five or your top 10, I really couldn't. And the ones that I called out was just to give you an example of the distinct things that each gift that they gave to the students brought out. I feel really lucky. By, that, by the way, that luck means working my ass off. <laughs> it's yeah. hard getting these people scheduled. Uh, it takes a lot of outside of class research so that I can give them the respect for giving up their time to conduct a good interview and to bring things out. And, you know, like we found each other, you find good people through other good people. And so I also rely on the people I have in class to suggest other people for the class. So I'm actually happy that I can't give you specific answers because that's more of an indication of just how good the group of people are that come to my class. Yeah, and I think that's also a good indication for the quality of people that, like I said, are in the book. And this is another reason why you need to check out the book because it's, it, it is such a fantastic book. And I think also it, it just pinpoints the fact that no matter how hard or no matter how high you are in your career, no matter how many successful people you've interacted with, no matter whatever level of success that you've reached in your own life, it's always hard work that leads you to the next level of success. It's never just a coast. And uh, once you've made it to a certain pinnacle of your career, all of a sudden everything's gravy, baby. It's you got to always keep hustling, always keep working. And so once again, I, I appreciate you taking time to be on the show. I appreciate you taking time to add value. And once again, I'm going to tell everybody that's listening to this uh, episode right now, you need to check out the book. Um, there'll be a link for the book in the show notes uh, that you can you can get a copy of your books on Audible as well as on Amazon. Jeffrey, just really appreciate your time pouring some value into our listeners today. So appreciate you, brother. Well, thank you very much. Uh, enjoyed the conversation. I hope the readers of the book and I hope your listeners uh, got something from it. But I totally enjoyed it. Thanks, Jesse. Thank you for listening to another episode of the My Creative District podcast with your host, Jesse Paul Smith. 
Here, we turn your passion into profit. Follow us on Facebook and stay tuned for another episode of the My Creative District podcast.